Well, this morning we come to the most controversial passage to be found in the most controversial book of the Bible. We come to Revelation 20 and the millennium. Now, the word millennium itself is not found in the Bible. It's from the Latin for a thousand years and was coined to identify the thousand-year period of history that's pictured in the first seven verses of Revelation 20. There it's recorded that John saw Satan bound for a thousand years and sealed in the abyss. During that same thousand years, the saints came to life and reigned with Christ, while the rest of the dead did not come to life until after the thousand years were completed. And then after the thousand years, John saw Satan released from prison to deceive the nations and to gather them together for the final war of God. At that confrontation, John saw Satan defeated and thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone to be tormented day and night forever and ever. It's a quick summary of what we're going to look at. The thing that makes this passage so controversial is that this is the only place in the Bible where we find mention of a special thousand-year period of history. And the debate centers on whether this thousand years should be taken literally or figuratively. Those who hold that it's be taken literally are primarily divided into two camps, the pre-millennialists and the post-millennialists. Those who believe the thousand years should be taken figuratively are called ah-millennialists, ah being a negative prefix. Now, hang with me. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but you need to get a handle on this, Okay. The debate between the pre- and post-millennialists center on the timing of the millennium. The pre-millennialists believe that Christ will come back before the millennium, the thousand years, and the post-millennialists that Christ will come back after the millennium. That's why we have pre and post. Now, in the 1800s, when dark continents were being explored and Christianity, along with Western civilization, was being spread at a phenomenal rate, post-millennialism was the predominant view. This view held that as the church evangelized the world, the world would become a better and better place, ultimately leading to a golden age of peace and prosperity, which would usher in the millennium. And then after a thousand years of peace on earth, Christ would return. Well, most abandoned this view after two world wars made it clear that things were getting worse instead of better. Today, the predominant view seems to be pre-millennialism. It's a view that's held by many popular evangelical authors and preachers in the media. 
The particular type of premillennialism that is popular today was actually formulated by John Darby in the 1830s and was popularized by C.I. Schofield when he published Darby's teachings in the marginal notes of his Schofield reference Bible. Now, Darby taught that Israel, not the church, was God's primary instrument for winning the world. According to Darby, the millennial kingdom which Christ will establish when he returns will feature a restored Jewish kingdom complete with temple sacrifices. And Christ will reign from Jerusalem over an earthly kingdom similar to the one the Jews expected when he first came. The church, according to premillennial dispensationalists, wasn't really a part of God's plan. It was established, they say, as a parenthesis in history because the Jews rejected Christ as the Messiah when he first came to them. Now, that is the heart, I think, of modern-day premillennial dispensational futurism and explains the basis of support that many evangelicals have for the nation of Israel today. The most orthodox view of the millennium, however, the one held by most churches and most Christians down through the ages, including the majority of Protestant reformers, is the ah-millennial view. This view holds that since Revelation is a book of symbols, and since it's obvious the key to the abyss and great chain pictured in Revelation 20 are to be taken figuratively, the thousand years should be taken figuratively as well. That the thousand years simply denotes a very long period of time, and that it specifically refers to the period of time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And that means we are currently living in the millennium. Let me state up front, in case you haven't guessed, I am an ah-millennialist. Having confessed that, let's take a look at an ah-millennial view of the millennium. <laughs> we're in Revelation chapter 20, and we're through with some of that ah, pre, and post stuff. Revelation 20, 1 through 3. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things... He must be released for a short time. Now, in our study of Revelation thus far, I, I think we've pretty well determined that we must not, that we cannot string together the visions of Revelation into one chronological picture of history and, and make any sense of it. It just makes no sense 
if we try to start at the beginning, read to the end, and see that as one picture of history. The key to understanding Revelation is the realization that the visions picture different aspects of what God is doing during the time between Christ's first coming and his second coming and even beyond. And that over and over again, we are given different pictures of the same period of history. In the seven seals, now that's tearing open a seal, not the, you know, honk honk seal. All right. In the seven seals, we saw what happens from the time Christ conquers a heart until he comes again. In the seven trumpets, we saw how God is warning unrepentant humanity throughout history and how the church will be witnessing to the world until Christ comes back. Beginning in chapter 12, we saw how Satan responded when Christ came to earth and how he raised up the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth to persecute the church. The bowls of wrath shows how God is even now punishing those who do persecute the church and led up to a graphic presentation of the destruction of Babylon and the casting of the beast and false prophet into the lake of fire at the second coming. Now, in chapter 20, we have the millennium beginning with the binding of Satan. Now, premillennialists insist that the binding must take place after Christ comes because the binding is presented in chapter 20 after Christ's return is pictured in chapter 19. But as we've just noted again, the visions of Revelation do not follow one another chronologically. Instead, we are given a short sequence of events that begins at the first coming and ends at the second coming. Then we go back to the first coming again for another sequence of events. Well, the last sequence of events we looked at with the rise of the beasts, the allies of Satan, ended with their being cast into a lake of fire. Chapter 20 simply starts another vision, another sequence of events, and focuses primarily on Satan himself. It tells us what happened or what will happen to him, what he's not able to stop from taking place, and what is going to happen to him when Christ returns. The vision begins with an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. With the chain, he binds Satan, and then he throws him into the abyss and seals it shut. The question is, when does or when did this take place? To answer this question, I think we must first take note of the fact that nowhere in Scripture, other than here, if you so interpret it, do we find anything about Satan being bound for a period of time or of his being thrown down or cast out in such a way to indicate a loss of power and authority at Christ's second coming? However, we do find references to his being thrown down and bound at Christ's first 
coming. In Revelation 12, after the birth of the male child and after following him to heaven, we saw Satan thrown down to earth. He lost the right to go before the throne of God and accuse the brethren after Christ paid the penalty for sin. In Matthew 12, after being accused of casting out demons by the power of Satan, Jesus said, And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? Jesus is declaring that he bound Satan before attempting to cast out demons. In Luke 10, when the 70 came back from their evangelistic campaign, they were excited because even the demons were subject to them in Christ's name. Jesus responded by saying, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall injure you. He was telling them that Satan could not stop the preaching of the gospel. And then in John 12, after some Greeks came looking for Jesus, he said, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from earth, will draw all men to myself. Taking together, these verses make it clear that at Christ's first coming, Christ or, or Satan lost most of his power. Because Christ came to pay the penalty for sin, he lost the power to accuse the brethren. Because Jesus was stronger than he was, Satan was bound and therefore unable to prevent the casting out of demons. When the 70 were sent out with the good news, he was unable to stop them. And when the Greeks came looking for Jesus, Satan lost his grip on the Gentile nation. Up until that time, he pretty much had been able to keep the nations in darkness. He'd been able to deceive them into rejecting the God of Israel. But now Jesus was going to draw all men to himself. Couldn't that very well be what the vision of Revelation 20 is affirming? You know, the Christians of John's day were almost at the point of despair thinking Rome would crush them and stamp out Christianity. They needed to be reminded that Jesus had bound Satan. That no longer, not at least for a thousand years, not for a long, long time, would he be able to deceive the nations to where they could blindly reject the gospel. He had kept them in darkness before Christ. But if the Christians would be faithful to him, Christ would draw all men to himself. The gospel would go out into all the world, and men from every nation and tongue would confess him as Lord, even the Romans. That, I believe, is the primary message of the first three verses of Revelation 20. Satan was bound when Christ came to earth, 
and would remain so until shortly before the second coming. Now, that doesn't mean he's powerless, only limited in what he can do. You know, many a crime boss has continued to manage his empire from prison, but there are limits on what he can personally do. The same is true of Satan. He's like a mean dog on a chain that can wreak havoc in a big circle, but cannot go beyond a fixed limit. There's a limit to what he can do. And specifically, he can no longer keep the nations in the dark. He's lost his control over the nations. They will hear and respond to the gospel during the millennium. During the long period of time between Christ's first and second coming, and there's nothing he can do to stop it. The Christians in John's day needed to be reminded of that fact. Well, then John saw a picture of the millennial reign, verses 4 through 6. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Okay, if we are in the millennium now, who are the dead who have come to life? And are reigning as priests and kings with Christ. Now, the answer would at first seem to be the martyrs. Those who were beheaded. Who were killed by the beast or other anti-Christ forces of the first century. Or perhaps even since then. Now the vision opens with a picture of the souls of Christians who have died and who are now reigning with Christ, the assumption would be that they are now reigning with Christ in heaven. There is some question, however, about whether or not the rest of the Bible actually teaches that the dead in Christ are now reigning with him in heaven. They may be. They may be. We may cross from time into eternity at the moment of our death and begin our eternal reign with Christ at that moment. Or we may go to a temporary paradise, as pictured in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, where we will be comforted until Christ returns and then begin our eternal reign. Our Bible, our, our Bible is not really clear on that. But it is clear that we are, in fact, now reigning with Christ by virtue of the promises that are ours. We have been made heirs of Christ now and are therefore called kings and priests even 
while on earth. In Revelation 1.6, John said, Jesus has released us from our sins and has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. So priests and kings is not something we will someday be, but what we now are. We are a kingdom of priests. The Apostle John, I think, sheds light on this vision and that idea in Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, where he writes, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. According to that, we were dead, dead in our sins. But Christ made us alive. And he spiritually seated us with him in the heavenly places. Could that be the same thing that John is seeing visualized in Revelation 20? Could it be that his vision opens with a picture of the souls of the martyrs on thrones to assure the Christians of his day that those who had already died hadn't lost anything, and then expands to show how all who are faithful to Christ, who refuse to worship the beast, have in fact come to life in Christ and are now reigning with him. The first resurrection would therefore refer to our spiritual resurrection from spiritual death, a resurrection that took place when we accepted Christ. Jesus confirms this very concept in Matthew 5. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is, now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear shall live. That is the first resurrection. When we come alive in Christ. And those who've had a part in the first resurrection don't have to worry about the second death, the lake of fire. We are priests of God. We are sharing in his reign even now and will continue to do so after the death of our physical bodies. We are the ones who are reigning in the millennium. Those of us who have come to life in Christ are priests and kings in the kingdom of God on earth now. And we will reign as such during this entire age. From our conversion, our spiritual resurrection, until the second coming and our physical resurrection. That's the two resurrections in view here. Now, obviously, those who have not accepted Christ don't have a part in the spiritual resurrection. They are the rest of the dead that John referred to. 
And they won't come to life until Christ comes back at the end of the millennium. And they'll then come to life only to face the second death. But before they're judged, something's going to happen to Satan that will bring the millennium to a close. Verses 7 through 10. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Before Christ comes back, Revelation tells us Satan is going to be released from his bonds. Once again, he will be able to deceive the nations. And as we saw in chapter 11, he will be able to silence the witness of the church for a short time. Apparently, it's during this time that the man of lawlessness that Paul speaks of in 2 Thessalonians, will deceive many with all power and signs and false wonders, setting himself up as God, as did the Roman emperors. And then, through the power of Satan, he will rally the forces of evil together to destroy the camp of the saints. Forces visualized here as the Gog and Magog Ezekiel prophesied against hundreds of years before Christ. This final assault on the church will be met the same way we've seen it met before, with the power of God. In the vision of chapter 19, when the beast gathered together the kings of the earth to make war against Christ, he and the false prophet were simply seized by Christ and thrown into the lake of fire. It was a non-event. They thought there was going to be this huge war. And Christ simply reached down, grabbed them, and threw them in the fire. That was it. It was a non-war. Well, here, when Satan and his hosts gather to make war against the church, they are devoured by fire from heaven. And Satan is thrown into the same lake of fire and brimstone into which the beast and false prophets were thrown. This is the same event. This is the same event. Only this time the doom of Satan is the focus of the vision instead of the doom of the beast and the false prophets. This is but another vision of Armageddon. This is but another picture of the forces of evil going down in defeat before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The millennium, this present age, will come to a close when Christ comes back to once and for all destroy the powers of evil. Now, when this will happen, 
We don't know. We've been told that Satan will first have to be loosed and the man of lawlessness revealed. But we've not been told that we will necessarily know when it is taking place. All we know for certain is that it hadn't yet happened when John received this vision, nor when Paul assured his readers it was still in the future. Now, even though we're shocked by the unbelief that does exist in our nation, our society is not totally blind the truth of the gospel. So from our perspective, Satan, while very active, doesn't appear to be completely unleashed. There still seems to be some limits on what he can do. So we question whether or not he's been released from our perspective. But you know, he may be simply focusing his attention elsewhere. Again, We're not told we will know when Satan's been released, only that he will be. He may have already been released. You know, with the rapid spread of Islam, nations are being deceived about the truth at an alarming rate. They're being blinded to the gospel. It's possible. It's possible. That the millennium is drawing to a close. And that Satan has been set set loose. It's possible. Bottom line, though, we really don't know. We don't know when Christ will return. John was given visions to help us understand what will happen when he does return. But he wasn't told when. Christ will return. And neither have we. So rather than try to figure out something that Jesus said he didn't even know, let's focus on what we do know. We know he's coming back, and we know we must be ready when he comes. And whatever your conclusions might be concerning the nature of the millennium, Don't let them lull you into thinking something else must happen before Christ returns. I see that as the big danger of some of this uh, thinking that's so popular. Because there are some who would suggest that before Christ can return, X, Y, and Z has to happen. If you believe that to be the case, you can sit back and say, well, he's not coming today. Consistently, through the scriptures, we are taught to be ready for his coming at any moment. Don't let some popular theology lull you into thinking you've got lots of time. You may not. You may not. Christ can return at any moment. That's a consistent witness of Scripture. We spent a lot of time discussing something that is confusing. I hope I haven't made you go crazy. 
I hope it kind of clarifies some issues, some terms you've heard. But bottom line, I hope it's giving you an understanding that Jesus is coming back at any moment, and we don't know when he's coming. That's the bottom line. That's the bottom line. So the question is simply, are you ready? Are you ready? Have you clothed yourself in the fine linen, bright and clean, that Christ alone can supply? Or are you still dressed in the filthy rags of your own righteousness? If you're not ready, now is the time to hasten to him. Today is the day to take your place as a priest and begin your reign in the kingdom of God.